This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. If you are a London Knights fan, you know the name Michael Hauser. Watch this. Michael Hauser. Yep, know him. Canadian Hockey League Goaltender of the Year, Red Tilson Trophy winner, his most outstanding player in 2012, has gone on to a career in professional hockey, led the London Knights to an OHL championship. Well, he's going to play in the NHL tonight. And if you don't know Michael's story, you might think, well, that's that's great, that's amazing. Another London Knights player going on to play in, in the NHL. Fantastic. And that would seem like, That was it. That was the story. This one goes a little further because those odds, making the NHL is tough. The odds are tiny. Doing it with what Michael Hauser's had to overcome, that's a different universe. And joining us right now is somebody who I imagine is just a little bit excited about all of this. Please welcome to London Live, Michael Hauser's mom, Monica. Monica, how excited are you? Oh, beyond excited. Can't even put it into words. Wow. How did you find out that this was about to take place? Okay. So, um, well, obviously, Michael has, was um, signed the contract. Can't even tell you what day it was. I mean, it was sometime in March with, you know, the Buffalo Sabres. And that enough was like excitement for the family. I mean, we were just you know, so excited. And then he's been on the taxi squad backing up, you know, a little bit here and there. So, you know, we've gotten those like emotions up and down. Um, We've been to Buffalo has allowed fans. And then, you know, it's kind of been like off and on. So we've been to Buffalo for two of the games. It just so happened the very first game Michael was backing up was in Pittsburgh. And we were Oh, so excited, and we were there, got pictures, everything. Okay, so um, then this all happens this weekend. I'm watching the game, and actually Bill and Alex were watching the draft, you know, and UPL gets hurt, and, you know, so fast forward to this morning, and I'm on a call, and all of a sudden a text comes in, and it's a dual text, Bill, Monica and um, that's just the way that we text and it said I'm starting tonight just you know Michael just his just simple as much as that I uh, hung up on the phone call that I had waited for you know 90 minutes typical you know COVID times and hung up on the lady and just over the moon excited Alex is you know, working from home right now in his doctorate program, went and woke him up. We were just, you know, all of a sudden the phone call started packing to leave to go to Buffalo only to find out no fans. So that's kind of where we are. But, I mean, we are just so excited for this kid that has just worked and worked and worked. And, of course, been texting back and forth with Dale Hunter that we could not be any more appreciative for what the hunters mark dale the entire organization have brought this kid to this day and um his first nhl start what more can i say you know monica hauser joining us 
And let's kind of get to this because, you know, you, you join a pretty small fraternity of parents whose son has been able to play in the National Hockey League. But Michael's road to the National Hockey League is a whole lot different than just about anybody else. Michael was born with bilateral club feet. And we don't really even know what that means. Monica, what does that mean? Um, well, when he was born, his feet were kind of inwards and turned up. And, you know, for, you know, lack of better terms, for layman's terms, that's, you know, they essentially, they needed correcting and over time. And back in those days, nowadays, they don't even do these type of corrections. You know, they're just done differently, not surgically, but um, he did have to go through numbers of surgeries up to two years old and then a couple other corrections at about 12 years. And, um, you know, but we never let it hinder him being a part of the other kids. You know, we do have three other kids and we never let it hinder him or his ability to participate with the other kids. And um, he was just always, you know, a teammate. um, And just that's where his progression was. When Nick started playing hockey, he wanted to be a part of the hockey team. He wasn't, you know, able to skate, wasn't the fastest kid on skates, actually couldn't skate. And that's why he was put in the net, because there was not much movement. He didn't have to move. He just had to kind of be there. And that's how everything progressed with him. And um, so there you have it. And actually, that's how we kind of went from Youngstown to Pittsburgh, because there was a specialty skate maker in Pittsburgh who was able to offset his skate to actually um, move his blades over and over time um, was able to do that for Michael um, to compensate for his feet until he progressed into normal goalie skate. So that's kind of his progression, but he never looked at it that he had this so-called different feet. We never called it a disability. We never looked at it as that, and um, he never looked at it as that, you know. So, and thank goodness he never did, And um, because there was other professional athletes that also overcame the exact same thing. And that's what we always focused on that, you know, that there would never be anything that he could not overcome. So, um, yeah, that's his progression. Monica Hauser joining us. Michael Hauser, her son, will play in the National Hockey League tonight for the Buffalo Sabres. Monica, when you have a child that has to go through 16 surgeries at a very early age on both feet, did you ever have a doctor stand in front of you and and question what Michael may or may not be able to do, even if your family didn't? No, we really didn't. We had one of the best physicians, surgeons in Akron, um, Dr. Weiner, that was world known for club feed, and actually he was the one who told us, don't ever let this stand in his way. He will do this. Um, he named number of, you know, athletes, and not that that was ever our goal in life, you know, for Michael to become, you know, this 
you know, world athlete, you know, we just wanted the best for this child. And um, he just told us nothing will ever stand in the way. There's, you know, people, you know, live long lives with bilateral club feed. And um, it just so happened when Michael was going through this thing, we just had the most positive attitude when you look at all of children around with illnesses that were far worse than what he was going through. It was a something that was definitely, you know, not something that it was curable and we were able to take care of it, which there were children around him that had far worse off stuff. So we always had a positive attitude. Michael never let it get him down and he's just always has been positive about it. I don't think he really ever talks about it or talked about it ever. Right. Well, now he is off to the National Hockey League, and like you say, he's been on the taxi squad. He's backed up for a few games, but now will stand in the net tonight for the Buffalo Sabres. When you look at at kind of the you know the road he's been on in his professional career, that's that's another aspect too, because it is tough to get to the National Hockey League, and he's played in the ECHL and he's played in the American Hockey League, and for goalies sometimes it takes a while to develop did any of you ever believe that this could happen because you know after a while you start thinking okay well hey professional careers are tough to come by you're in a professional career what about you know waiting through the years that it's taken to get to the nhl what's that been like you know what honestly mike he's never been a doubter and i guess that that's the thing about it you know that kid worked so hard, you know, obviously last year was a pandemic, but every year prior to that, he has gone up to London, gets an apartment, works out, works hard, gets a trainer, goes on the ice and skates. He knows where his roots are from. You know, I mean, there are times that I guess we looked at, you know, over the years, oh, you know, people go to Europe. We've had calls. We, as in, like, even people around Pittsburgh, oh, would he be interested maybe in going over to Europe? You know, we taught, you know, when we presented that to him, his outlook would always be, I'm going to do this for a couple more years. He would never, like, bring up, like, I just think that I still want to make it to the NHL, but you knew that was his vision. You knew that he had it in him or that was his passion. It was his goal, and it was far from us to knock that out of him or to be a doubter because, you know, if that's what he wanted to do, then go for it. And we weren't going to be the ones to tell him not to go after it. He was such a hard worker. He's such a good kid that, you know what, then go ahead, keep working hard and keep doing what you love doing. You know, I mean, that's, you know, if everybody could be that happy at doing a job, then, you know, that's great. You know, if you go to work every day being that happy and that passionate over something, then that's what life is all about. Wow. 
Well, there it is, starting against the New York Islanders tonight. Michael Hauser, 28 years of age, Youngstown, Ohio, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Monica, it is always great to speak with you. Thank you so much for taking some time to give us the parents' perspective on this. So, unfortunately, it is a pandemic. You said there are no fans in Buffalo. Where do you plan to watch the game? Well, we're just going to watch it right here, you know, um, just our family, you know. So I think it's better just to be in a small little group on a night like tonight, you know. So um, there are going to be a couple watch parties of our families are going to watch, you know, in bigger, larger groups. But I think that we're just going to watch, you know, smaller. The kids wanted to fly in from Chicago um nick and shannon are there but when we got the news that there were no fans you know we kind of put everything on halt and so yeah there you have it you know but then they do play in pittsburgh later in the week so we'll keep our fingers crossed and you know we just hope the best for him and he knows we'll be there in spirit with him if nothing else so there you go now, have you talked to him at all or texted with him today, or, or are you doing the, the goalie thing and you just leave goalies all by themselves? Yeah, we just leave goalies by themselves. Me and Michael always have on game day. We go back to, I send him a good luck, love you, and he knows what that's about, and that's always brought, you know, that's a thing between him and I. We did that, and he sent the response back, and then we're good to go, and we don't talk the rest of the day so that's our thing and i know i won't hear from him the rest of the day and you know we'll be there watching you know we already have the game all booted up on the computer and we'll hook it up to the tv and you know watching him skate out on the ice and i'm sure it'll be an emotional night for all of us incredible monica thanks for sharing this with us enjoy it all Oh, thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. Take care. Okay, you too. Thanks. Bye-bye. That's Monica Hauser, Michael Hauser's mom. Because, again, you, you leave goalies, as Monica says, to themselves on game days. But this is a game day. Guy who, born with bilateral club feet, 16 surgeries on each foot, wanted to play hockey. Only one place he could play because he couldn't skate because of his feet, couldn't skate well enough to be a forward or a defenseman, so into the net he went, embraced it, worked hard at it, made it to the OHL as an undrafted free agent, found by Mark Hunter. You know, if you want to talk about looking for a goalie somewhere off where you wouldn't expect to find one, there he was. And he was on a team that wasn't very good, and he was facing 45, 50 shots a game, and they'd be losing 6-1, and there he would be, trying to make that next save, never giving up, just trying to make that next save. And Mark Hunter watched that and said, I like what I see from this guy, and brought him to London, and he had a spectacular junior career, and then still had to overcome. You know, it wasn't a paved road to the NHL and played in the ECHL, and as Monica says, had opportunities to go to Europe and thought, no, I'm, I'm still going to stick with this in North America. Let's see what it brings. And contract after contract did not bring him to the NHL. And then he's been on the taxi squad, but games are, are kind of whittling down this year. And then all of a sudden an injury to Uko Pekalukkanen, and in he goes. And he will play tonight against the New York Islanders.
Facebook started as basically a hookup app, didn't it? Or a hookup website, I guess an app wasn't even around necessarily when it was getting going. Do I have the details of Mark Zuckerberg and friends correct? And YouTube. wasn't Didn't somebody upload a zoo movie to YouTube? Wasn't that the first thing that, that was uploaded? I will find the first. It was something obscure. The first thing uploaded to YouTube. Well, all of a sudden, regulations and legislation aimed at things like YouTube and Facebook and other platforms has created a big stir. And there have been a lot of opinions as to what Bill C-10 has laid out. Let's have a conversation about this right now with someone who follows things like this incredibly closely. Our good friend, Dr. Thomas Cook. Dr. Cook is a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University. Dr. Cook, how are things? Fantastic. Lisa, looking good, feeling good. How are you, Mike? You know what? The Leafs are looking very good. Is there a deeper team? They haven't even added Riley Nash into the lineup yet. Frederick Anderson hasn't played yet. It's it's a lot of fun to watch. I'm glad that they've clinched. I'm glad that they're playing as well as they are with, with key guys out of the lineup for these remaining games. I think the postseason's looking really good. Well, the fans of the Toronto Maple Leafs have waited a long time for a long run, and we'll see whether it comes this year. They play Montreal tonight. Michael Hauser is playing tonight for the Buffalo Sabres as they take on the New York Islanders, and there will no doubt be you know, video available for us to watch tomorrow morning on either of those things coming from the National Hockey League, but it's video and things that are available in other places that we're going to chat about right now by the way the first video ever uploaded to youtube was me at the zoo 18 second video me at the zoo a guy named kareen who was a youtube co-founder at the san diego zoo he was standing in front of a bunch of elephants that's where all of this began now billions and billions of videos later we're talking about something called Bill C-10 in Canada. Dr. Cook, first off, can you kind of give us the the context of why this has become (laughs) such a major topic of conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking, Mike. This has been in the works for for a while now. Bill C-10 is essentially an act that is meant to amend the Broadcasting Act. And the, the primary move that it seeks to make is to place the CRTC or the Canadian Radio Television and Radio Television and Telecommunications Commission. It's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? It's a place the CRTC, which is our Canadian Broadcasting System regulator in Canada, um, in a position where they can essentially regulate content that is used by uh, major social media companies like YouTube, like Facebook, like Twitter, so on and so forth. Uh, Spotify is a big one that's been coming up in debates recently, and the reason why Bill C-10 seeks to do this is that they believe, the legislators believe, that if the CRTC is able to regulate content uploaded to these social media platforms, that they will then be able to help promote more Canadian content on these platforms for observers around the world, with the hope in mind, of course, Mike, that by doing so, Canadian content producers, specifically musicians, will have more representation on the international, excuse me, international stage, and thereby bring more attention and revenue back to Canadian artists. That's essentially what's going on. 
Okay. And hey, this has been there for a long time. If you look at the music industry, there is a thing called Canadian content. It gets shortened to CanCon, and it comes down to M-A-P-L. M for music or musician, uh, or I guess music. A for artist, P for producer, and L for label, I think is, is the way it goes. It's been a while since I had to you know, <laughs> write those down in some kind of test, but I think I have it right. And in order to qualify as, as Canadian content, you need two of those four to be Canadian. And for a long time, FM radio stations could only play 50% hits. They all had to play Canadian content up to, I think the level was 33%. And that varied, you know, depending on, on different licenses. So this has been around for a while. What do you think has, has really created the interest level that we've seen from people speaking up about this? That's a really good question. I think part of it has to do with the fact that a very, very, very well-known Canadian scholar by the name of Michael Geist, who is a law professor at the University of Ottawa, and he's currently holding the Canada Research Chair um, in Internet and E-Commerce Law, has been speaking to the media quite a bit recently about um, further revisions and changes to Bill C-10. And something that he mentioned to global media very recently was that there is a decision among regulators writing Bill C-10 to remove a very specific section, Mike. That section is called 4.1. What 4.1 suggests is that Canadian content produced by everyday people, not necessarily the MATL things that you've never had to write about on a test before, but we're, (laughs) we're talking about, you know, like, trip to the zoo kind of stuff. Maybe that's an exception because it was one of the co-founders of YouTube that uploaded that. But like, for example, my phone is filled with videos of, of my beautiful rescue dogs hanging out with my beautiful wife going for walks. If I were to upload that content to YouTube, this section 4.1 would protect me in that that content would not be regulated by the CRTC. So again, 4.1 is meant to be specific about what Canadian content would fall under regulation to the extent that content produced by everyday people like you and me would be excluded from regulation. The reason why Dr. Geist is upset is because the same legislators that are creating Bill C-10 have silently removed Section 4.1. What does that mean for us? Those videos of your rescue dogs and your family and going to the zoo and recording a shot of you and your friends at the Knights game when hockey resumes, hopefully at the end of this year at the uh, CHL level, that will be regulated by the CRTC if Bill C-10 passes. And if everyday content is regulated, we are going to have an entirely new world of social and ethical issues when it comes to the content that you record with your phone and upload to any social media platform in the world. Well, you have put this right into the sites then in terms of why we should be concerned about it, why it matters to us. We're talking with Dr. Thomas Cook about Bill C-10 and about the Section 4.1 that People are certainly wondering about that. That has, and you say it's been removed. This, this is the, where the bill, where the legislation sits right now. That protection has been removed. 
Yeah, so I, I think initially what started off as a very, very poor bill in Dr. Geis' estimate, estimate uh, back in December um, has become even worse. For some reason, the people who have created Bill C-10 have decided that it's a good idea to not only regulate uh, Canadian content uploaded to social media companies to help artists out, but any content uploaded by anybody should also be regulated. That's that's precisely what's going on here right now, Mike. That's what's at stake. We're talking with Dr. Thomas Cook, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Centre at Queen's University. And Dr. Cook, you know, we can all join with you in that we've got videos of things on our phones, endless things that, you know, may mean something to us. But let's face it, if you upload a video with your dogs, I might watch that and go, hey, cool dogs, but I'm not going to think much of it. If I upload a video of, you know, me doing a snow angel in my front yard in January, you're going to look and go, isn't he getting a little old to be doing that? But are you really going to care? I mean, it, what what do we have to be concerned about when it comes to regulating stuff like that? I think there are a lot of concerns, and I think to, to Dr. Geist's credit, he feels strongly that there are so many concerns, Mike, that it's far too early to tell. I mean, Bill C-10 has not been passed. It's being worked on. It is a very controversial bill. I, I think a lot of people listening right now would be concerned about the CRTC regulating anything after the numerous follies that they've had over the year in preventing the further monopolization of certain content in Canada. In fact, as a regulator, I think the CRTC has, has done a very, very poor job in promoting Canadian content and protecting the interests of Canadians themselves. So to have the CRTC essentially transform internet platforms into the purview, into something that falls under the purview of broadcasting regulation, I mean, that's what we need to be thinking about. What does it mean to have videos and photos on your phone be considered by the federal government as parts of broadcasting standards? Now we've entered into a completely different realm of thinking about social and economic consequences, don't we? What I, I think is not just at stake here is the potential for people to, you know, be, to be monetized, you know, to, to upload a video of your dogs to YouTube. But what's going to end up happening potentially is that any social media platform that is going to accept daily content from Canadians, they're going to have a lot of hurdles to jump through. Does Canadian content need to be labeled as Canadian? Do certain kinds of Canadian identities need to be clarified as such? If an American or a European or a Russian is looking at Canadian content, does that mean that the Canadian content uploaders need to sign off on new legal waivers? And I think if I could pin down among the <laughs> multiple different kinds of concerns that could be, Mike, is what does that mean for the future? And the thing that I think about in terms of future implications for everyday content creators, Mike, is the potential for taxation. I cannot see a possible way in which Canadians are going to avoid being taxed for uploading everyday content if they're going to be represented by a body like the CRTC. Now, I could be out of left field. I'm sure that there are observers and critics that might disagree with that implication being one. But because there are so many, as Dr. Geist is saying, it's far too early to tell.
Interesting. Okay. So that at least brings a lot of this back around to why would the government care? So in other words, if your video of your dogs becomes so popular that you're making some money on it, or my snow angel in the front yard takes off, goes viral, all of a sudden I'm getting you know, the money, from, would, it, would it be that kind of taxation that they would be looking at, at lobbying a, a new tax at us? It's possible, but I, I mean, I, I just don't understand what, what purpose, what utility, what social utility regulating everyday content it is actually going to provide. What does it translate into in terms of value added for Canadians? This is hmm. the thing that I don't understand. I, I think it's very clear that daily content creation has turned into a kind of gig economy. There is clearly an entrepreneurial vein to this in the sense that there are Canadians who are making hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year through advertising revenue when they upload videos of themselves playing video games to Twitch, for example. Uh, maybe it's meant to help promote people like that, but was what has been clearly ignored or not addressed yet by the government is what it means to have a device on a Canadian's hip that can be used to capture memories of the world around them and then to say to them that those media that you've created with your device, those memories, need to be regulated. That's what's at stake here. It, it seems that, that my simplification might seem a little bit absurd, but it is important to denormalize what it means to have a digitally recorded memory regulated if you want to share it with other people. This is where we need to start having these dinner conversations. And then I think we sprawl out from there to start preparing ourselves for the kinds of possibilities in terms of implications and consequences for simply uploading a video to something like YouTube. Dr. Cook, thank you once again for putting this into everything that we can understand and adding something to follow it for. Really appreciate the time. As ever, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Mike. That is Dr. Thomas Cook from Queen's University, where he is a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Centre. Bill C-10, you'll hear more about it as it moves along. There's a conversation that is going to happen tonight at Jewish London, and it's going to detail a story that we're lucky enough to be able to tell at least part of right now. And it comes from a book. It's called Painting Resilience, The Life and Art of Fred Turner. And Julia Mayer is the author, and she's talking about a family friend of her family by the name of Fred Turner. And Fred is actually going to join Julia tonight in this conversation. And we were lucky enough to speak with Julia earlier on and just talk a little bit about Fred Turner, who survived the Holocaust and then went on to do some dynamite things in his life and continues to do dynamite things in his life. We talked with Julia about the fact that Fred is a family friend. And we asked her to take us through how she first identified not only that he's a friend, but that his story was one that just needed to be told. 
Absolutely, Mike. Thanks so much for asking and thanks for having me here with you today. I appreciate the opportunity to, to chat. Um, Fred Turner has been, as you said, a, a family friend, somebody I've known for most of my life. I always want to say we grew up together, but in fact, he was in his 70s and 80s when I was doing my growing up. Um, I've known him, you know, for a really long time and I've heard sort of snippets of his story. He's a Holocaust survivor. He's a painter. Um, he has offered for many, many years to take me on a tour of his studio um, to see his artwork. And I'm a New York City kid at heart, and I had a really specific idea of what it means when an older man asks a younger woman to tour his studio. And so I said no for a really long time until it suddenly occurred to me that this was an amazing offer and something that I should absolutely not pass up. Um, and on that tour of his studio, Fred shared sort of little snippets of things that inspired his artwork. Um, he survived four concentration camps. Uh, he was in hiding before that during World War II and importantly has had a, a long life since then. It's more than 70 years since his liberation. And over the course of that conversation, it just became clear to me that we needed to capture both the story that that he experienced of what happened to him in the camps and what happened um, during the Holocaust, but also what happened after liberation. I think a lot of the time that story can get lost. Often, often Holocaust stories end sort of at the end of the war. And the opportunity to talk about what happens next. How do you go from living in a concentration camp to what he described was, I went home and moved back to Prague. And I said, but how do you do that? Um, and those stories of, of how do you keep going? How do you maintain resilience? How do you live with trauma? I think really, really need to be told. And so I felt really fortunate when I wrote to Fred and asked him if this was something he and I could embark on together that, that he was willing to do that. Julia, how do you do that? What did Fred tell you? There is unfortunately no magic answer that would fix, you know, all past trauma. I think if there was, hopefully we would all know what it was by now. Um, but there are a lot of things that I think are common throughout Fred's life. One big one is even during the war, he really focused on teaching and learning. He always wanted to be learning something new. And I think that is part of who he is. It's part of exercising his mind. And there are some amazing stories um, in Painting Resilience, the book, about how he and his fellow inmates taught one another and learned from one another. Um, but it's something that I think in addition to exercising the brain is also a way of saying to yourself and to others, there's a reason that I'm going to need to know this. He was in a concentration camp when he learned calculus, when he learned French poetry. Um, he and his fellow inmates were saying to each other, there's going to be a reason for French poetry in our lives one day. We're going to survive this. And when we do, we're going to need to know French poetry. And I think that's something that stuck with him for many, many years. Um, another piece of it that he'll talk a lot about is you get up and you put one foot in front of the other. You set up routines that feel safe, that feel comfortable and, and stick to them. Don't let yourself get bogged down in the things that, um, that have happened in your past and don't let that be all that defines you going forward. And I think the last piece that is really important that really comes up throughout, throughout the book, throughout Painting Resilience is finding what it is that you can do that creates harmony. So Fred will say that 
what happened to him in the camps is a bass that's playing inside of him all the time. And what he's found in art isn't a way to drown out the bass. It's a way to play a fiddle over it to make beautiful music. And what that means for you or for me might not be a paintbrush. Um, for me, it certainly wouldn't be. It's It would be a, a pen or a, a pen and a piece of paper. Um, but finding what it is in life that creates harmony out of trauma and doesn't try to mask it, but tries to allow you to move forward with it. We're talking with Julia Mayer, author of Painting Resilience, The Life and Art of Fred Turner, a family friend of Julia's family, a Holocaust survivor who seems to have the most incredible outlook that is portrayed in in this book did that surprise you that 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 outlook was the one that fred would have given what he and others had to go through it's almost the opposite because i've known fred for so long i know this to be his outlook i know him to be someone who's hopeful and who's moving forward and so when we really got into some of the stories of what had happened to him in the camps and some of the stories of what he and and his first wife who was also a survivor experienced it was almost shocking to me how how awful it was how dehumanizing it was because I've known this man as somebody who is who is optimistic and who is moving forward in his life and who is building a new family and a new home, um, you know, in Brooklyn where where I grew up and and where I met him, um, and I think that it was hard for both of us. Um, he does tell this. He tells his story. He is. Um, a survivor who speaks out about what his what he experienced, and so I'd heard some of it, and I think I I thought I had heard most of it. Um, but he, through this project, he really gave me the opportunity to ask much deeper questions and and to push him beyond kind of the sound bites that he often gives for interviews. Um, he'll be joining me at the event on on Monday um, with Jewish London in speaking to the audience uh, here, and one of the things that I've been really gratified by when we've spoken to other groups is people will often say, I've never left hearing a survivor speak and felt hopeful before. Um, it's such a heavy topic. It's, and it's, and it is, it's weighty. His experiences are not easy. Um, but you can leave and feel hopeful at the same time. And I think that's what Fred brought to me and, and what I hope I, I brought out through painting resilience. Julia Mayer joining us. Julia, as a final note, this is a piece of history that more time passes, it, it becomes further and further in the past, but something like what you and Fred have done allows that story to be there. What does it mean to know that you have people who maybe, you know, will not have any sort of appreciation that there were even great wars other than in that history book be able to say but here's someone's life here's what happened in that second world war here's what they went through what is it like to know that it's i hope that it inspires people to stay involved um, and to watch out for their own communities and the communities of others I think that that's something that Fred really inspires me to do. And I, I hope it's something that we bring because I do think it's easy to get bogged down in the numbers and the numbers are horrifying. They're staggering from World War II. 
but each of those numbers is a person and a story and a family that was torn apart. And I think capturing those stories and what it means to move forward, knowing that as your history is critical. And I, I appreciate everybody who picks the book up because writing it is, is one thing, but it's readers who make sure that the story is maintained. Um, and so I appreciate everybody who attends an event with us or, or picks the book up or both um, and takes that time to really help bring these stories forward. Julia and Fred will be speaking with Jewish London. The book is called Painting Resilience, The Life and Art of Fred Turner. Julia, thank you so much for number one, writing the book, uh, seeing that this is a story that could be told, that needed to be told, and now has been told. And thanks for the time. And thanks for coming into London to share the experience and, and Fred's experience as well. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate the chance to, sh to spread the word about this event. And again, that'll be Monday, May 3rd at 7 p.m. with Jewish London. And if you'd like the Zoom link, it is a free event. You can email um, Eric from Jewish London. His email address is eric at jewishlondon.ca. And I hope to see some of your listeners there. Thank you so much, Mike. Perfect. That is Julia Mayer. So eric at jewishlondon.ca if you would like the Zoom link because Fred Turner will be a part of that later tonight. That is Julia Mayer, author of Painting Resilience, The Life and Art of Fred Turner. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.